elementary students, if you're in kindergarten through fifth grade, you can head with Pastor Dave today uh, to children's worship. So head out to that. If you beat him in there, you've got seconds to really have some fun until the real stuff starts, right? So it's good. For the rest of us, uh, welcome. Going to be like that today, huh? Okay. What, you want to try again? Welcome. Hey, yeah, it's good to see you too. Like it. All right. Let's, we'll just pretend like that first thing didn't happen. All right. Uh, hey, if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Titus chapter 2. If you're uh, using one of the house Bibles, page 1193 there. Uh, excited to spend some time with you. Uh, while we're turning there, let me just uh, give you some quick housekeeping logistics and, and reinforce uh, what Dave was mentioning earlier uh, because I, I really would like you to be a part of uh, our time this coming Wednesday, the 25th, as we sort of talk about our fall schedule and serving opportunities. Uh, but in particular, uh, one of the things we can really do that would be helpful as a church between now and then is uh, you could fill out that card that's in the bulletin that notes that you'd be interested in understanding or attending a growth community this fall. Now, let me, let me put some kind of framework around that. Uh, our conviction here as, as a church body is that if you just showed up at 10 o'clock every Sunday or uh, 40 Sundays a year, whatever it is, and after you miss the ones that you miss, right? And uh, you spend an hour here, and, and you're nice, you know, and maybe you're, you're extroverted as much as you can be, and you talk to people, and you kind of get to know them a little bit, and you would even look around and say, you know, I can remember at least eight r names in this room, you know, and I talk to people and see how they're doing, right? Like, or you have people that even though you sit near them and you talk to them every single week, you don't actually remember your, their names, but you're not, like, willing to actually ask them what their name is because it's already been, like, six months and you don't remember their names. It's, I know it's every single one of you. Don't lie to me. I do it to you, right? Like, so I know, I understand, right? And, and so then in that, right, you get this kind of relational feeling. But our thought is, our belief, our conviction is, you could do that and, and ultimately what it looks like to be a part of a good, healthy, uh, encouraging Christian community is always going to have some lacking in that. Because uh, the reality is, uh, this is a big group of people. And uh, the truth is, if you were to spend just a short amount of time with anybody over the course of a week, uh, you're not going to really get to know them on a level that allows you to be vulnerable, that allows them to really know who you are and what you're like, that allows them to encourage or exhort you, or at times to correct you or challenge you on some things. And so we believe that if you are going to be somebody who really is growing in what it looks like in church community and growing in your relationship with Christ, in relationship with other believers, that it's going to include more than just an hour on Sunday morning. And so uh, we, we kind of build out a subcategory that we call 
growth communities. The design is to help you with that. And so maybe that is the hour before this during Sunday school on Sunday mornings. Maybe it's during the week some, sometime uh, at somebody's house or here. Uh, maybe it's some other nature, or some other community that you're connected with. But the idea is anything that we can kind of structure or put together or organize that ultimately exists to help you get into a smaller community where you're with other believers who are going to get to know you on a deeper level, who you're going to get to know on a deeper level, who you can really be honest and real with, find some encouragement and some refreshment with. We ultimately feel like that is one of the key aspects of what it looks like to grow in Christian community. In fact, as the book of Acts describes the early church, it notes that they're meeting daily house to house, that they're consistently focused on this as a really key piece of what Christian growth looks like. And so uh, we, we also recognize that as you kind of formulate these sort of structures or these, these type of communities, that there's a couple different ways that you can start. You can start with structure and schedules and go, okay, let's, let's build out and here's, here's the schedules and here's the days and times that it's happening and the places and then we'll plug people into those places. Or you can start with people and go, okay, here's the people that want to be involved. Let's find a schedule, date, time, place for them to be a part of that. Uh, historically, we probably lean to the former and, and this year we kind of want to enter into the fall kind of pressing on the latter a little bit and going, okay, help us out. If you think, you know, as, as Nick, you described, the idea of Christian community, uh, I really feel convicted. I do need to have that. Or maybe for many of you in this room, already have that, and I want to continue with that. That would help us as well. Uh, we're just going to ask you to take the little insert in the bulletin sometime before you leave today and fill it out and say, yeah, I, I do plan to attend a community. That could mean I know exactly when I'm going and where I'm going, or it could mean I have no idea what community would make sense for me. Help me find one. And then our commitment, our commitment to you is, is sometime in the next few days, we're going to contact you and go, hey, what makes sense in your schedule? What, what do you think makes sense in the way that you would approach community? What makes sense in how you would do that well and what, what the church uh, would cooperate together to create in that that would provide structures to do so? Uh, and so we would love for you to fill those out. That makes sense to everybody? You got that? You don't have a bulletin. Okay. Get one before we leave, right? So, so on your way out, they're sitting on the table there. Uh, you can just grab one there uh, and fill that out. It's right inside of the bulletin. Drop it in the basket. That would be awesome. Totally understand that. Uh, I'll, I'll try to remind you as we close up as well. Um, because that will be really helpful, especially going into this Wednesday where we start to talk about opportunities to serve, what we're planning to do in the fall, how we're setting up systems and structures so that we can just continue to be a church that is glorifying the Lord in all that we do. Amen? All right, pray with me, and we'll continue to talk from Titus 2 this morning. Heavenly Father, we are really grateful to be here today as uh, we continue to contemplate, to think about, and to, to worship together, thinking and, and learning and trusting what it looks like to be a church community that is, that is healthy, oriented around worshiping you. Uh, we just pray that your spirit would move in powerful ways in that as we uh, look 
uh, some really tangible and practical things regarding that this week. Uh, I, I just pray that uh, it would convict well. Uh, at times it's going to sting and it's going to hurt anytime we're hearing things that we ought to do better or we ought to do differently. But I, I pray in it that that would lead to a healthy and encouraging conviction, not just a guilt or a shame, but rather that it would bring us into a deeper relationship and a fellowship with you. It would pull us closer to you. Help us with that, Lord, by the power of your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, um, Titus 2. We, we began a series last week in the book of Titus, uh, really, really kind of working through this idea. What does a healthy church look like? Uh, in fact, we said the premise of this is that, generally speaking, most people are going to define what a healthy church is on the basis of the unhealthy church environments that they've been a part of. If you've been in a church over the course of the history of your life, you have all of these kind of different bitter tastes or experiences that help you sort of go, well, I know that a healthy church wouldn't be one that looks like this. And we said, generally speaking, a lot of times those are going to categorically start to group themselves into different things. And so last week we took, I think, one of the very biggest ones, and we said a healthy church is one that has godly leadership, elders that are focused on being what the Lord instructs them to be, focused on doing what the Lord instructs them to do, uh, being people who are above reproach, who could be trusted. And so often you see in and throughout churches that are kind of dismantling themselves and deteriorating because they have a leadership that doesn't really submit themselves to the Lord, that are unhealthy in the very top levels of this, at the basis of what the church is supposed to look like. And so we said then out of that, what we were going to unfold and see is that, again, you, as you kind of consider what a healthy church looks like, a healthy church not only is healthy in its leadership, but it's healthy in its congregation, in its congregation's approach to one another. And so, so many times people have bad experiences in churches because they had bad experiences with the other members of the church, right? That the church couldn't really be in good relationship, good in connection with one another, and it leads to some unhealth. And so we said, not only is a church healthy in its leadership levels, but a church is healthy in its community toward one another, the way that they interact with one another, the way the body cooperates with one another. And then uh, what we'll kind of conclude with in the next weeks is that the church is a healthy church when it is interacting well with the community that it exists in, right? That it's, it's having a mindset that is looking outward and doing things in the place that God has given them res responsibility to do ministry within. And so uh, that leaves us this week in chapter 2 in the kind of second piece of this sort of structure that Paul has put together that a healthy church is a church where the church body cares well for one another, loves one another, encourages one another, is committed to one another. The consistent analogy or situation throughout the New Testament is the church is the body of Christ, made up of many members but ultimately existing as one body. The idea is that you and I collectively, as the people of God, are meant to be committed to one another. And so as Paul is laying this idea out, what he's doing in Titus, if you, you weren't with us last week, is he's writing to uh, a disciple of his who he's left on the island of Crete to 
encourage and guide and lead the churches in that island. And so he's giving him very practical advice about what the churches ought to look like and how that ought to go forth. And so today, he just works through uh, categorical lists of people. And so he begins with older men, and then he goes to older women, and then he goes to younger women, and then he goes to younger men, and then he actually finishes with slaves, which we'll see if we get time to talk about. But in that, uh, he's, he's building out from these categories some things that you ought to do and you ought to be for the sake of you being a part of a healthy church body. And so we're going to look at those categorically. We're just going to kind of make some observations in the list. Uh, I'm going to say some things that are going to be probably fairly challenging and maybe even a tinge offensive to you as you get to your category. Just know that I love you and that's why I feel like I have the courage to say that to you. I hope by the working of the Holy Spirit. And if you're offended, good. Right? That might be good for you at times. All right? But in order to get there, I have two things that, that you got to kind of think about and know as caveats to this. All right? So here's, here's the first one. Over and over and over again, when the Scripture gives you what I'll call how to live instructions, right? This is, this is what you do. This is how you act. This is who you should be. This is what should happen in your life. It is always, always going to be because of the gospel, not the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That, that we live flowing out of the truth of the gospel. That you and I are incapable of doing enough how to live things to please God. And so God, in His grace, in His mercy, sent Jesus to come and to die to redeem you from all of those failures, to purchase you back to God, save you, so that in light of that, because of that, you would live a life that is indeed pleasing to God. However, you could never, in your best efforts, in your own self-discipline, live well enough, according to these lists, to do that in your own abilities. Amen? Watch how Paul does this here in Titus. In fact, I think it's so important to him that he's going to bookend all of these how-to-live instructions with this very truth. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. He says, but as for you, Titus, you speak the things, and then he says it this way, which are fitting for sound doctrine. What sound doctrine is he talking about? Well, it was the sound doctrine of chapter 1, which is the understanding of the gospel that he began the very letter with, that we are in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promises long ago, and at the proper time manifested even his word in proclama proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Right? That in this... Titus is a common child of common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. And so the, the sound doctrine that Paul wants to be taught is always going to be in light of the gospel truth according to Jesus. And so then he's going to go and say, all right, this is what it looks like in the way that you live. And then if you jump down to verse 11 where we're going to finish today, he notes this again. He says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. That for could be uh, translated because, right? Why, why do you live in such a way that is pleasing to God? Well, you do it because the grace of God has appeared to you, bringing with it 
salvation, that we live in such a way because of who Christ is, not in order to earn the favor of Christ. I've, I've shared this illustration before, but I feel like it's so, uh, so tangible and so helpful in this reality. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes this story about uh, a couple farmers living in a kingdom. And he talks about how this one, this one farmer uh, is growing carrots, and one day he comes across a carrot, and it is the best carrot that he has ever raised. I don't, maybe some of you understand what makes a carrot good. I don't even know if that would be bigger or smaller or oranger or what, you know. But like, he looks at it and goes, this is the greatest carrot that I've ever grown. Pretty significant for him. He brings it to the king and presents this to the king. And with this presentation, he tells the king, out of all of the years that I've farmed carrots, out of all of the ground that I've farmed, out of all of the work and toil I've done, this is the best. This is the best prized carrot I've ever had. And he presents it to the king and he says, because of that, I want to give that to you. And so the king, kind of overcome with the joy that his subject would give him such carrots, says, thank you, and then he gives him uh, a large portion of land, thousands of acres, and says, you now farm on all of this. Take this and go forth because you have given said carrot to me. Well, turns out there's another guy, subject to the king, standing there who sees this. He happens to be someone who raised horses for his life, and so he goes home and he finds a horse. In fact, he doesn't find just a horse, and his whole kind of group of, what a fleet pack, herd. Are horses really a herd? Learn something new. All right, his whole herd of horses, and he, he takes it, and the next day he brings the best, the prize horse, the number one horse in his herd to the king, and he says, King, see, out of all of the horses in my herd that I've raised over all of the years, this is it. This is the finest, nicest, fastest, most beautiful, best mane. This is the horse. And because you are the king, I wanted to give it to you. And the king says, thank you. And that's it. And, and now the subject has lost his best horse and he did not get the prize that he expected to get. And so uh, he begins to kind of walk away moping and the king says, do you want to know why I didn't say anything more than thank you? And the guy's like, well, yeah. Yeah, you gave that other guy all the land, right? He goes, because, because yesterday a carrot farmer gave a carrot to me, and today you gave a horse to yourself. And, and so what he's recognizing, and C.S. Lewis bring this back to the spiritual reality, and this is what Paul is going to note, and, and he notes it over and over again in the scriptures, so important for us. It's the gospel recognition is because of the grace of God, because of who Christ is, you and I ought to live in a specific way. However, if you live in a life of legalistic obedience, trying to do things so that you might gain something back from the owing of the king, you've missed it. That's not the gospel. In fact, that's idolatrous worship of self. And so in it, Paul's reminder is that you would live in such a way as church community that is recognizing God's grace. And so uh, we might note it this way, right? Like is, if we are a body of believers who really treasure the Lord and treasure the gospel, a healthy church has actions that flow from that value, not in order to create that. Amen? 
Okay, so that's, that's warning number one. And then, and then secondly, I think this is really important as we read it. I think this is going to make sense to you. But again, Paul's going to categorize people into these big groupings, uh, which in our culture has grown to be, I think, a more and more rebellious idea and a more and more frustrating thing as you kind of watch a culture try to shed off the hierarchy of patriarchal systems of the past and try to decide that all people are exactly the same and work in the same way. I just, I just think it's important to note that Paul, as he's doing this, is describing complementary positions within the body of Christ, noting that older men and older women and younger women and younger men have differing roles for the sake of cooperating together to bring about a body of Christ that exists to love and to honor him, right? The, the way I always think about this is um, I'm going to give you a sports illustration, and if you don't watch sports, I'm sorry, but you got to just deal with this one for a minute, okay? Uh, in 2004, I was graduating high school. Uh, the Detroit Pistons, their basketball team was uh, incredibly good. And not only were they very good, they won the, the NBA title in 2004, but they were also disruptive to what the NBA was trying to do. Because if you know a little bit about the NBA, it's always existed to be a league of like superstars and a few people that sell a lot of tickets. And so that year in particular, something really special had happened. The Los Angeles Lakers had built the first like real super team. They had Shaq and Kobe, if you know a little bit about basketball. But then also, uh, there were two other guys, Hall of Famers, a guy named Gary Payton and a guy named Carl Malone, who were uh, kind of twilighting their careers, had had this like really magnificent career, and decided that they would team up with Shaq and Kobe. And between this, they would be a team that was completely unstoppable. At the beginning of the year, no one expected the Lakers to uh, perhaps even lose games, right? Like, let alone not win the NBA title is almost a foregone conclusion because they had four of the best scorers, four of the best offensive options in the entirety of the NBA. And the Detroit Pistons had five guys who uh, were all good and none great. Right? And so, so out of this, here's what happened was really interesting, is because these five players on the Detroit Pistons starting five were all good, but none of them were great, they all began to find different positions where they operated in space that was ultimately good for them. And so they had a couple scoring options, they had a couple shooting options, they had a couple post options, they had a couple players that focused most on defense, they had players that complemented each other well, and they got to the NBA Finals and they, they crushed this Lakers super team, and it was almost jaw-dropping to see, and my point is in, in this, that I think that when Paul begins to make categories of how people complement one another in the church body, what is wise for us to remember is never in the Bible is there going to be an instruction or an understanding of some type of people as inferior to others that doesn't exist, right? In fact, the Bible is clear and consistent in teaching that there is not some type of people, whether it be based on race or whether it be based on gender or whether it be based on some exterior factor that is superior to another type of people. 
What Paul is going to distinguish here in Titus is that the church works best as people complement one another, as people fold together for the sake of the church body and church community. And then he's going to point out, uh, as we move forward in this, uh, some things that I think specific groups of people have a tendency to struggle with and an encouragement to do better in these areas. Amen? So, so you with me so far? So let's read, and here's, here's kind of the goal for the finishing of the time. We're just going to read these categories, watch what Paul is specifically encouraging, and then I want to just kind of poke at each group of us and go, this, this is where we fail in this, and this is why he encourages in, us in this, and this is how we ought to do better. So watch him. But as for you, this is verse 1. Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And he starts with older men. Now, I don't know what makes you an older man. I think it's if you have white New Balance tennis shoes and, and this high socks. Could be anyone. I get my dad like a pair of those a year, man. I'm telling you what. It's right at the beginning of mowing season. Can't wait to get out and push mow with those new balances on. Right? Like if you wake up and it's like everything just creaks and aches and you've already been up three times that night to go to the bathroom. I don't know if there's a, there's a specific age where Paul speaks about, but I do know that he speaks about a defining set of characteristics that he wants you to consider. Watch what he says. Older men are to be temperate dignified, sensible, sound in faith, love, and in perseverance. That, that they would be somebody who is temperate, well-balanced, dignified, worthy of respect, sensible or self-controlled, that they would be sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. That, that last one, perseverance or uh, endurance, that they would be steadfast in their life. I, I wonder about that one, right? Um, I think the reason is because there's a tendency among older men, especially in our culture, right? I think there's a tendency about older men that just causes them to want to coast out the rest of their life, right? Maybe it happens when your kids graduate high school, or maybe it happens when you pay for the last daughter's wedding, or maybe it happens when you retire from work and you get this feeling of, I've worked hard and I've earned it and I've done it, and now I'm going to rest and then with that, I'm going to enjoy some me time. And what happens is a lot of times older men have a tendency to withdraw from any parts of society that might really challenge them or cause them to press into others. And so they, they really become self-absorbed and they spend the rest of their lives uh, fishing or hunting or golfing or doing these things that aren't bad. I, listen, I golf a lot. But in that, right, they, they've moved themselves out of somebody who would persevere, somebody who would endure, somebody who would see the cause of Christ as important and have just coasted out the rest of their life. And so Paul says, persevere, that you would go forth. Not, not only that, I think um, I get a little more testy with you. I think the tendency among older men especially is to become cynical and argumentative towards the world as a whole, right? The kids these days are so pathetic and terrible compared to my day when I worked so much harder and you spend probably a little too much time watching Fox News and getting frustrated about the world and then you're just kind of bitter and angry about everything that is going on around you while you sit and wait and coast in your armchair, amen? Just 
trying to be, just trying to be honest about what we have this tendency to do. And then look at how Paul says this, right? That you would be temperate and sensible, self-controlled, that you would have a demeanor that doesn't see the world in such bitterness and anger, but rather looks at it and goes, okay, how could I pour into a generation that needs the encouragement of men who have lived and walked in the light of the Lord? And not only that, but I think uh, with that kind of cynicism becomes a tendency to get uh, self-oriented and then rude out of that. Older men are the best at being uh, just rude to people because uh, ultimately you feel like, well, I've, I've earned it, I've done it, I deserve the respect because I've lived this many years. And to that, Paul says that you would be dignified. Right? That, that term, dignified, means that you are worthy of respect, not demanding of it. And so Paul's reminding you that as an older man, one of the ways that you could walk in Christ-like community would be somebody who presses on, who perseveres, who endures, that you would have a spirit of sensibility and temperance, that you wouldn't find yourself so enraged by so many things around you, but that you would see the church body as a people that you could invest in and spend your time and life caring for, encouraging, walking alongside of, and that out of it, you would be dignified, that they would be, uh, you would be such a person that others would see you and want to bring respect to you rather than feeling like you have entitled yourself or earned it over the years. Amen? And so, so Paul's kind of laying out this idea of what an older man in the body of Christ ought to look like versus what in the world they so often do. And then, then he goes on, right? So if now our men are a little angry, let me get to the women. I gotta t- I'm, I'm more nervous about this part. I, older women, and if I wasn't going to define what makes an old man, we're not even coming close to defining what makes an older woman. Likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women. Well, we'll get to young women in a second, but let's pause there. That, um, that phrase, malicious gossips, the Greek word there is diablos. You might know it. It's the same root word as devil, that, that Paul uh, recognizes that the temptation of older women might be to find themselves speaking slanderous, devilish things for the sake of uh, sowing discord based on their uh, complaints or their frustrations. I, I read a commentator this week, and, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to read it so that it's not my words if you really get angry. Right? But here's what's going to happen. As I read this statement, some of you are going to be deeply offended and simultaneously be thinking of individuals who fit the bill. Older women can sometimes quit caring what other people think. And so they lose their filters on speaking their mind or talking badly about other people. 
Right? So, so Paul says that they would be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, that they wouldn't be tempted to just simply air out complaints and speak poorly about other people, that they would hold in that a sweetness and a recognition of what it looks like to invest in or to care about. And specifically, Paul's going to say younger women, that, that the opportunity in a healthy church, the opportunity in a body of believers who really love one another is that those who had walked this life had been through this would see that as a way to disciple, to encourage, to mentor those who are younger, to train up. That word encourage, it literally means to train up the younger women. Now, now it doesn't say to complain about them or even to complain to them or even to correct them in all things, but rather to encourage the young women. And then it, then it says this, to love their husbands to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And so the young women are instructed to do this, to be sensible, to be kind, to be pure, to be workers at home. And then it says uh, a couple that I want to just mention for a minute. Because I think, again, we go back to this idea that culturally these, these things are just warred against an ideology more and more so now, right? But that they would be uh, subject to their own husbands. That, that a young woman would do well in the body of Christ to submit herself in her family dynamic and to treasure that. Now, now here's the thing that I think tends to happen in American culture about this is generally speaking, uh, as you move out of, especially, and maybe, maybe we're insulated from this a little bit in a rural church environment, but as you kind of move out into the culture, you will find a greater and greater degree of people who really hate the idea of a wife having to be subject to her husband, and yet in a healthy, valuable Christian marriage, Doing that very thing, they will admire and love a couple who actually practices such truth and practices it well. Amen? And so, so it's something that kind of in ideology has become warred against more and more so in our culture and yet in practice is seen with admiration because what it means to be subject to your husband is not to sit underneath inferior to a domineering force. What it means is that you are laying down of your will, laying down of your preference, laying down of your authority, submitting yourself into the dynamic of a family for the glorification of the Lord together as a unit. That's why it connects so well in this with the idea that women should, young women should love their children and be workers at home. That doesn't mean that you can't have a job outside of the home. It just means that you do well for the body of Christ, you do well for the glory of the Lord, and you do well for the sake of your family when you can treasure and value your children, treasure and value your home, treasure and value your husband, and find yourself in purpose and meaning glorifying the Lord in that. Amen? And then it, then it finishes with this. Young men. And, and uh, again, I don't know what makes someone a young man. I'm going to cling to that for myself for some period of time still. But he says this in verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible or self-controlled. 
That's it. One thing. Because you can't handle more than that. Right? That's all you're smart enough to get. Here's, here's the thing, even more so than that. Uh, generally speaking, I think it is the core or the source of most sin and frustration among young men in the culture, in the world we exist in today, is that they are primal in following lusts and passions and not exhibiting self-control. They are a slave to their desires first and foremost. And most of the young men, and I can get away with this because like I said, I'm already putting myself in this category, but most of the young men that I meet are incredibly selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, and self-motivated by what they're going to do. In fact, I think the stereotype of young women or women in general being more emotional than men is a complete load of garbage compared to what I see because I've never seen a group of people that exist in a culture like young men who exhibit a set of actions driven almost completely by however they feel. Amen? Wildly emotional, wildly selfish in their needs and desires. It, even, so, this week, we, uh, we have Wednesday night... Uh, church here we we've been working through the attributes of God studying and like uh this Wednesday I'm getting ready for that I'm at home we're kind of finishing up dinner Uh, I'm kind of excited to go over here but but it had been like a really long week already and so I was a little bit tired and as we get ready to leave Whitney and and I think she did this as we got ready to leave because she knew that like I had to go do something in public and so maybe it would like take the edge off of this but she said hey I just want you to know that the garbage disposal is broken now, I, like, the backstory is this, like, two weeks earlier, I had spent, like, two full days, like, replumbing, installing, hooking up the electrical, getting this garbage disposal working. I'm not, like, naturally very good at those kind of things, and so it was, like, a pretty long, like, guess and check, don't electrocute myself process to actually make that happen, and, like, when it does, there's this sense of accomplishment and joy and really, honestly, if I'm just, just being straightforward about it, uh, selfless accomplishment and joy because I don't need a garbage disposal. Okay? Right? So you're with me and, and she goes, the garbage disposal. And right there, grown man, right before coming to teach you over something that matters not at all, I'm like holding back tears. Right? Be, why? Because, because here's the thing. Like, young men, you are not very good at being self-controlled. You're just not very sensible. Our tendencies is to find ourselves emotionally, wildly up and wildly down. And the real issue in a society that we have right now is, is most of you just act based on those emotions. And so Paul's final encouragement is that you would exhibit self-control, that you would walk in spiritual discipline rather than tossed to and fro by the latest of your emotions. So I got a new garbage disposal and I'll do the right thing. Listen, spirituality is so much more than this, so, so much more than just these things. But I think Paul is looking at a group of people and, and recognizing, and especially as we go to Titus 2, in Crete, right, and he notes the chapter before, the week before, that this city is filled with people who are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, that in it, the tendency among even God's people is to find ourselves self-absorbed, 
self-interested and challenged by so many worldly sinful things and attitudes. And his reminder is that if the church is meant to be healthy, it is going to do so by addressing in the power of the Holy Spirit because of the grace of God and the gospel how we might live in a way that is good for one another, cares about one another, and begins to interconnect with one another in a way that is glorifying to God. Because he, he finishes it this way. Here's, here's how we kind of end today is why? why? Why does the church need such encouragement in these things? Why do these lists even exist for us? Well, he says it this way, and there's a couple reasons. I want to I finish with one today, and then we'll pick up with the others tomorrow. Down in verse 11, he says this, For because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instruct us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And then listen to this, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Here's, here's the reason or the recognition. Because in light of the grace of God, if you know the Lord, if you have placed faith in Jesus, you have been redeemed. You and I are a people for the own possession of Jesus. His body, the other term described in the scripture of the church, is his bride. That you and I exist as those zealous for good deeds, as the possession of Jesus. And so Paul's telling Titus, you encourage the church. Encourage the church to be a people who would continue to be sanctified in these ways, continue to be encouraged in these ways, continue to watch the Holy Spirit transforming us in these ways so that we might be a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds, that we could give glory to the King. Pray with me and we'll sing one more song today. Lord, I think about all of us in here, different places and stages of life, different challenges and areas of confidence, different things that we walk through and struggle with. And I, I pray that we're reminded, reminded in the truth of who you are, that, that the church is meant to be a living, corporate, communal entity a people together, connected with one another, loving and caring for one another, encouraging and helping one another. And that in doing so, it would continue to draw us back to walking in light of the gospel, that you would help us, Lord, help us this week to be a people who are zealous for good deeds, that you would passionately make desire to walk in your ways. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, why don't you stand? We'll sing one more song together.